we are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence. A prolific author, internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Hello, everyone. This is Avital. I don't know about you, but I tend to live in dog time. So there's a real drag on my sails. Things slow down. I am kind of um, touched by a sense of incomprehension and questioning that tends to dwell in me longer than in others, perhaps. So I want to share with you some of my considerations and reflections because I've been asked to do so. I wouldn't necessarily presume to speak out right now, and I know that you all have different modalities of relating to the impossible, because let's make it clear that we are in what French philosophers have located as the impossible. And that's the good news. That means that all of our abilities and, and incapacitations are being called upon to renew themselves and to crash against a wall of experience and history that will make us, even if we're just dummies, kind of um, relate to different types of survival. And that's today's lecture, so to speak, or reverie, or contemplation. What is survival? How have philosophers and poets allowed us to open up our heart spaces and minds to different types of surviving that barely eke out an existence, or that slow us down precisely, or that have us carrying the other as we care for them. So I've been through a number of disaster zones, including 9-11. I had a real close-up of that, living in downtown Manhattan and having been in the park when the planes flew over my head. I've also, before that, lived in San Francisco when I taught at Berkeley. And at that point, the height of AIDS articulated itself and devastated entire communities. And that virus really laid us low for a long time and continues to beat up some of the more vulnerable members of our, um, let me call it provisionally society, community. Now, community is something we want to think about because I am addressing those of us and those of you who compose a community without community. In other words, those who are not caught by certain reassuring um, ways of belonging, identifying, self-locating, self-limiting, those who tend to fall through the cracks of that which allows us to, to feel safe, and secured and assured as we continue to consider what it is that allows us to survive, which has been philosophically divided into ways of merely living on or um, having a relation to something that my mentor and teacher Derrida called 
the survie. So survival, something that um, expands into a relation to existence that we want to consider in the next series of conversations. At this point, I understand, and yes, at this point, I understand survival as something that we cannot take for granted, but must explore to the extent that what we're going through is not something vague, but may be co-piloted by what psychoanalysis would call an unconscious motivator, what Freud calls the death drive. I want to explain that carefully so that um, I don't frighten anyone away, but on the contrary, invite the complexity of contemplation that allows us to seriously stare down and explore what's hitting us very hard and pushing us backwards into a place of the unthinkable. Trauma very often leaves us with the residue of unthinkability, meaning we're so dazed, we're so knocked out by something that exceeds and surpasses our capacity to, to cognize or recognize or give uh, a sense of something that we're not able to make it mean something crucial for us, even though it's served us with a knockout punch. And what I mean by that is not that we're looking for the truth of what is happening or the meaning of what, or a single meaning, because there's a multiplicity of meanings, hypotheses that we want to look at as very contemporary fine-tuning thinkers. So what I'm suggesting is that we may not want to reduce, as many philosophers do, because they have a great dogmatic training background, so they want to deliver a meaning or what is called a substance or the essence of a question or an answer more likely. But we're different. We're going to really explore things to the limits of intelligibility and embrace and open up, which is difficult and not necessarily pleasant, opening up to the unintelligible or that which we can't reach. Remembering that Freud himself has said that our narcissism asks for, begs for, desires, and needs closure. In other words, we need to close this down, and Western Logos has been very complicit with this, the need to wrap it up, finish off, terminate, finish with something, and relegate it to a space of meaning that can be ultimately dispensed with. Because if you think you've nailed it and you've understood, and by the way, Nietzsche's last words philosophically are, have I been understood? In other words, he opens up the questioning mark and does not close down his shop or his thinking with something that could wrap it up or explain to us what his work has meant. So I know that sounds a little convoluted, but it actually is meant to free up space of thinking, of poetic probing, and of wondering together what is hitting us so hard. And let me remind us all that wondering or astonishment is the philosophical mood.
I think you heard that. Uh, that was an interruption. The telephone rang. That will be part of our consideration in this adventure that we're embarking on. What is the status and nature of interruption in political, philosophical, poetic being? Right now, I was interrupted by the phone call, by the telephone. And by the way, I wrote a a huge book on what it means to accept a call or decline a call, especially a call from a pernicious state. We will get to that when we discuss technology, our poly dependencies on the technological outreach programs that we have, the way technology pumps us, disappoints us, connects us, creates false pockets of consciousness, but I do want to take the opportunity now to thank the interrupter, who is Gary, our great uh, technician and, and actor. He takes part in all sorts of crucial aspects of, of the Monaco philosophical group that I belong to and that I am hosted by and housed by. We will also discuss housing project, what it means to be in residence, what it means since Kantian philosophy to be unhoused or hosted, or from what position we can even dream the dream and the nightmare of confinement. Because not everyone has the luxury of being confined, and there are types of confinement that are extremely noxious, destructive, and problematic, very oppressive, that we want to not neglect at all. This is the time to uh, reach out to those who have been locked up, shut up, minoritized, and silenced. So we're with our brothers and sisters and other types of sentient beings, the animal world, uh, that, that are tied down to oppressive modalities of muteness. So let us consider our mutinies and muteness issues. And as we try to talk into the silence of lockdown. Now, I was just interrupted, and I used this as a teaching moment, saying that it was the great thinker Levinas who started thinking about interruption also as an ethical stance, what it means to interrupt something, to be interrupted, and how can we read the interruption. Many of us, all of us, are in some serious way interrupted right now. We've been interrupted. We've hit the pause button. Something has stopped with or without the promise of renewal, change, revolutionary adjustment, breakdown. We're not sure. Let's stay with the interruption and also with the technological incursion that shakes us up in certain very determined ways and ways that I'd like to go over with you in future emissions. But perhaps now I will try to put a, a stop on the interruption, but only by thanking Gary for his amazing work with the Rencontre Philosophique as a member, as someone who, who um, supports and creates the technological grid and a certain 
relation to thinking that I find very important. So let me just um, stop because I'm being interrupted by the garbage trucks. Let me thank them too for making us think of who it is that keeps working, what that work is and requires, what kind of exposures and risks the workers are taking right now. And also, we will need to think about déchets or what what is called um, refuse garbage, um, excremental waste products, all of which are in some ways repressed by philosophy and um, yet part of part of um, what we need to think about. Let me take an off-ramp here, and I apologize for the outrageousness of this, but I'm an outrageous kind of girl. So I think some of you are used to that. Some of you may not kick with it, but maybe you'll allow it at this time when everyone's so super serious. My seriousness is not the opposite of being outrageous or being called to be outrageous in a time of, of the need for greatest sobriety. But I don't, I'm an, a Nietzschean type who doesn't think that the greatest sobriety needs to be heavy-handed at all times. So um, I wanted to take an off-ramp because the garbage truck sirened up with its song of marginal philosophical urgency. And I remember people just a few days ago were puzzled by the um, overinvestment in toilet paper and why are people focused on toilet paper as the supra surplus value that everyone needed to be in possession of and have an excess of. This may not be what I planned, but that's what interruption does, and that's what we're all experiencing. No one planned what is happening or bypassing us now, <clears throat> and we won't really know what will have happened for a while, because as it happens, it retreats from us. It withdraws its meaning from us. This is something I will discuss with you. And before I, uh, I need to wrap up the question of toilet paper and its hyper-invested stature that puzzled and infuriated so many. But psychoanalytically, I think it makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm not one who wants to reduce things to sense or one meaning, as I was beginning to say, because I think that's a little totalizing, even totalitarian, and it stops an event from becoming what it is and what we can't yet grasp. So um, toilet paper, what, a, what an exalted way to, to start making your acquaintance. Nonetheless, if we go to the um, insights, the terribly important insights of psychoanalysis, you'll know that um, the anal phase, which is a, a very early in a child's development, is a place of and an experience of control. So potty training, 
it's also the place where the first donation, the first gift is given. Just think of a child who proudly proffers its kaka as a gift, as a product. It may be a student who has written a paper, or it may be really um, regressed, let us regress to an early stage of giving. The first primal experience of giving proudly some something that one has produced. So I guess <clears throat> this is what Freud calls tusis nervosus. When you're um, coughing nervously, it's a neurotic signal that you're not comfortable. I'm going to live, leave it in, even though it has an interruptive force of parasiting the smooth run of this DJ's discourse. But it, it signals that my voice is not happy with me and that there's a split there. In any case, I think that due to psychoanalytic understanding of human development and the different stages that we go through, it makes absolute sense that one was focused and hyper-invested in, in toilet paper when this terrible incursion occurred that we're calling the pandemic of coronavirus, COVID-19, because the anal stage where the sphincters are um, called into action is what psychoanalysis designates as the moment in development when you control, when you have control of something. And this is a controlling factor. So this bizarre and overwhelming invasion, viral ferocity, whether it's very regressed and it reminds us of mythic furies or whatever is coming from around the bend and is unrecognizable and yet going after you. So there's a very primal persecutory um, motor to all of this where we're scared, as you say in English, fasten your seatbelts, scared shitless. So that's the zone and realm where questions of control first emerge around excrement, around anality, around being able to hold it in, to deal with it, to expel it, and so on and so forth. So that would be my little pop psychoanalysis contribution, which I don't feel is that abject, though it deals with something that has surprised civilized beings. Namely, is that part of the legacy of responding to a, an out-of-control viral invasion, namely a kind of particularized overemphasis on toilets and toilet training or training one's anxiety on the toilet. I say yes. <laughs> Let me affirm that fear of losing control of one's historical and culturally coded sphincters. Okay, that was an off-ramp. You can, you can have uh, jumped away from it, I understand. But we do want to um, put all of our training and formation, no matter how refined and uh, ascetic it's been. In my case, I've spent years in archives and in dungeons of learning. And, um, and yet, maybe one of my singularities, if I may so state it, of course, with irony and self-abjection and so on, is that I never have shied away from the dreck, the um, excrement, the um, fertilizers that undergird 
our greatest cultural prides and achievements. That's a Nietzschean stance. Nietzsche says that behind everything that we laud as beautiful and good and just is something criminal and despicable and stinky. So stinkiness will be another um, venture of ours, not right now at the first time we're introducing our work together. But um, I will not shy away from that because that is part of what we live with and repress and repel, remembering that we have the language to back up the most uh, scandalously uh, material kinds of designations. We, we say the stinky rich or the filthy rich. And that has all everything to do with the relation, the primordial relation, if it's primordial, of money to excrement to smelliness and so on and so forth. So um, Freud reminds us that people who hold their noses high or stand erect and therefore are very corseted by politesse and are very very um, well-disciplined and so on in cultural behaviors. They're the ones that repress, and that's why you stand up high, because you're no longer doggies. Now we're getting back to my doggie, who are sniffing each other. <laughs> and so um, the higher you stand, the more distance your nose has from your anus, the more repressed you are. And this would be the origin of repression. Now. That's a genealogy of morals, to quote Nietzsche, that Freud offers us. If you think that's horrid, that's okay, just skip over it. But I'm here to um, faire face or confront a kind of uh, large range human, post-human, inhuman, subhuman behaviors and grammars of being. And I hope you can be interested in that since we are all inscribed in that and enrolled in those schools and potty training and things that we think we have left behind. Well then, I had a very specific trajectory in mind and planned for our first rencontre, our first encounter, and I was taken away from that um, kind of rigor that I had planned for myself in order to um, draw you into what philosophy and poetic utterance can offer us in this time of um, unhinging difficulty. And I let myself be carried away, maybe even cared for, but basically carried away by um, contingent interruption. So I let chance take a chance with us, and I gave chance a chance. Very often, that is not what a philosophical procedure um, tolerates. Usually, you have to um, knock out chance occurrences, parasitical utterances, noise, things that are likable to kind of, well, I would say, minoritized traces that can't be mastered or contained. Uh, usually, you like to clean that up, demagnetize, and present a clean, clear uh, kind of discursive image or thumbprint of what you are capable of and how you edit the um, sudden kind of neurotic interferences. Not always neurotic. Today, they were material interferences. But as an obsessional neurotic, I take every 
kind of tracing and marking very seriously. It's, a, it's hard work to let the interruptive force of something that doesn't necessarily collaborate with your attempt to create meanings where you even avow, as we have, that you're not going to insist on some sort of substantial meaning that can be held up. But to understand that we have a kind of devoir, that we're duty-bound to create meanings. Nietzsche called this, um, not in terms of duty, that would be too Kantian for him and too harsh a taskmaster. He would not want us to think that um, we must um, come up with meaning, but we owe it to ourselves to bring in, as first responders on an intellectual, philosophical, poetic level and psychoanalytically trained and potty trained and, and carried forth. We owe it to ourselves to bring and contribute an emergency supply of meaning. That is to say, to offer the possibility of an intention, a meaning, even where we understand that these re must remain groundless and part of our um, uh, loving intervention toward this earth and one another. This sounds maybe very strange, but it's precisely where meaning is not programmed or pre prescribed or in some um, way something that we can't be dissidents of or complain about or kick away from our paths to the extent that there is no path to prescribed and no great pronouncement of the truth of what is happening. That's where we're in it together to, to work it out without the solace or certitude that we've got the conclusive understanding. So we will work together in what I would call hermeneutic frustration. Hermeneutics is the science of meaning. It comes from an original relation to scripture. What does this mean? How does our understanding of this work or unwork or break apart? How do we break this down so that it becomes part of, let's say, an archive of understanding? But we will also be very patient with the frustrating aspects of non-understanding. And this is where my Nietzschean personality pops up and says, let's live with non-understanding. Also the way that Georges Bataille urged us to stop making sense. When you make sense, you close things down. You close the book on them sometimes, which is a slangy way of saying you send it to its own confinement or imprisonment. You lock it up. You don't want to hear from it. But we are going to stay close to and lean into the emptiness of sense as a correlate to the emptiness that we might be asked to hold today. I look forward to discussing some of these imponderables with you and for finding and urge us to try to find our um, thought patterns in the unintelligible smackdowns to which we are presently subjected. So see you next time.